Hello, and welcome to Hush Plus One, where every week or so, Hush invites a guest from the worlds of art, design, technology, fabrication, or creative business to discuss their work, passion, and approach. I'm your host, Adam Kruckenberg, and this week, we have the dynamic and eclectic Philip Stearns, who works in technology and many fields of art. Condensed from a much larger conversation, I hope you're as inspired as I was by this interview. Is it Philip or Phil? In informal settings, I go by Phil. In professional presentation, just to like search engine optimize whatever, it's like my I name mean, is Philip not very common. Does sound more Philip David you know, Stearns? Boom! Oh it's like, yeah, yeah. I, oh, Philip David Stearns. I'm I represented by a gallery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, that, that, no, that I'm not. Definitely feel that. I feel like the Philip David Stearns gallery could be a thing. Yeah, I think my parents were thinking more like law firm. Oh sure. Yeah, or maybe medical doctor. That's more like it. They wanted me to be a doctor, I'm pretty sure. And was that ever in the cards for you? Did you ever think about it? No, I think when they were saying, you should be a brain surgeon, your hands are so steady. I was maybe like in <laughs> like kindergarten. I'm like, I want to be a truck driver because Transformers are cool and Optimus Prime rules. And then you're like, oh, soldering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm so high on these flux fumes. All right, I'm just going to start out asking you a few questions about how you got to where you are, which is all over the place. What? Am I that? You do a lot of really cool stuff, and it doesn't always seem to be connected intuitively mm. at first glance. It's clearly very connected. Yeah, there's one person behind it. That's yeah. what connects it all. <laughs> That's the actual connection. <laughs> nice. You were saying you thought trucks were cool when you were a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's start about then and uh, see how you got to where you are now. Where did we get okay. um, from? <laughs> uh, were you were you were you an artist? Were you a musician in like high school or elementary school? Was like, that an interest of yours? Going yeah, going back to elementary school, I wanted to be an artist. That was pretty clear. There was especially just one particular trip to i'm not sure if it was like the museum of contemporary art but there was an art museum in austin where i was growing up where it just clicked that was the kind of stuff i wanted to do and also i had a lot of peers who were also drawing and i wanted to draw with them and i would draw with them but that's i, I wanted to make that my life and i think my parents were just like no you will no, not yeah. be an artist you have to be a doctor or a scientist or an engineer or you something mean, like you that. You need to have a steady job that exactly. can be prestigious and give you lots yeah, of money. Yeah, and they, and they say this thing because they care about you. Sure, they want sure, you to, sure. But then also I'm realizing now that we're all getting on in our age, yeah, yeah. it's about them. <laughs> and, yeah. and they're like, how are you going to take care of us? <laughs> we, didn't do, we didn't do the retirement thing. You yeah. got to figure this out. <laughs> uh, like, you were our retirement <laughs> policy. Sorry. So um, you were in Austin. You were a kid who liked to make art. Did you go to school for art? I went to school for engineering first. So through high school, I was doing advanced courses in like physics and math and science. I was headed towards engineering. You are also an engineer. Yeah. You are a good engineer, I think. Thank you. Behind the hood. Yeah, but there's a lot of things. curiosity there, and you are involved in a lot of different technologies, and there's a lot of good output that you've been able to do being the technician and also being the creative force. Yeah, it's, I, I need help. 
clearly so do I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been helping them. I've been able to like basically use the powers of science and engineering in the creative practice. So that creative drive never went away, and it eventually boiled over. And while I was studying engineering, I had to I had to do something with it. Painting and composing music instead of doing my linear algebra and Diffie Q. Uh-huh. Uh, I was basically uh-huh. like two two years of undergrad away from a degree when I started because of advanced courses in, in high school. I have cool. my parents to thank for pushing me in that direction. It also gave me the the space to explore my educational possibilities a little bit more. And so I just gradually pushed them more towards taking care of the creative side f- through music and audio engineering because I have to make a living. And then grad school at music composition. In that program over at CalArts, it was called Experimental Sound Practices. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be Comp New Media. And then somebody, I think it was Mark Trail, was just like, let's, let's amp this up. Let's make it really sexy and get the students in here. But yeah, the emphasis was more on thinking through what it meant to be composing through different media, not just like your traditional notes on line paper or text-based scores, but scores as embodied in code or uh, physical hardware, and then expressed not necessarily through the performance of musicians, but thinking about machines and systems as performers as well. And that got me thinking about, I was already thinking about architectural sound and spatializing things. And this led to my interest in installation art and basically took those two years in grad school to build up a portfolio that kind of explored the space between standard composition all the way up to thinking about that composition as immersive and uh, interactive installations. With a healthy dose of generative composition as well, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. So after that, you were still engineering audio for... To I would, pay the bills? Yeah, totally. I was working night shifts on and off over at American Public Media's Marketplace show. Nice. Yeah, with Kai Rizdal. I got to run around and record CEOs with him for the Corner Office series, put together pieces that eventually went on air, and I, I did voiceover work, too. <laughs> I, I can tell. But yeah, that was a short bit of time. I think in the hours, in the in-between hours, I would basically, and I'm not sure if this was kosher at the time, but I would use the DVDs available and the burners to send off applications to other <laughs> things. So I was like trying to get the grant money, trying to get the shows going and look, working they, on my video uh, practice. They don't pay that great. Working in a studio, you get to use the studio, you get to use the gear around. I don't know. I feel like that's just like an unspoken kind of perk that you get in those sorts of things, so don't feel too bad. Clearly. Anyway, so after that, how did you move into doing more of what you're doing? Let's start with circuit bending. When so did you start doing that? Circuit bending started towards the end of undergrad. I spent a semester away in Sweden and met up with a composer who introduced me to Pure Data, which is the open source Max MSP, just graphic programming language for making music. And I was also improvising back home in Denver with Lauren Edwin Parker, and he was encouraging me to do all sorts of crazy things with found objects, electronic things. And while I was, I think I was looking for some sort of transducer and stumbled upon an interview with Reed Gazala about circuit bending, and it all clicked. It was like, hey, there's this improvising practice of improvising I have. Uh, there's this stuff that Lauren is encouraging me to do. And it, like all of this stuff comes together and it has a name. It's called circuit bending. And I think at that point, I just bought a whole bunch of toys while I was in Sweden and planning my trip back so that they would be waiting for me 
when I arrived. <laughs> I just <laughs> cracked it on them. eBay. And yeah, exactly. And that was eBay was the place then. And it was just like an obsession after that. So what are some of your favorite circuit bending projects that you've done? There was a series of circuit bent TI-99 4As called the Maelstrom, and the Pixel Maelstrom. And I basically found ways of building audio circuits to make them audio reactive and turn them into instruments that I could play that were both audio and visual. So I'd build in ways of either sonifying the circuits on the board or building in sound circuits that were also taking in signals from either light sensors that would deploy on the, the television set or in, in the projection path. So you got away from uh, traditional circuit bending pretty quickly into something that where you were actually building a lot of extra parts and new functionality yeah. into these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people, there's that basic circuit bending where you're like, okay, if I hit this one point right here, I can make it glitch and do this weird thing. And that's like the classic thing. It's like you got a switch that suddenly makes it freak out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I have a high tolerance and or develop tolerances very easily, uh-huh. so I get bored. So that's not interesting anymore. <laughs> no, my dopamine hit goes away. Yeah, After yeah. the switch, I'm like, oh yeah, that's cool. That's a switch. Can I modulate that switch? Mm-hmm. Like, all right, I have to build a, a, an input for it and like all the backing electronics. No, it was part of it was you have the system, you break it apart or cause it to do all these weird things. And you're wondering like, what's making that happen can i just figure out what this chip is and what it does and then <laughs> that, just go from there uh, luckily you have some engineering experience yeah, that's that's where that background comes in handy the reverse engineering so you go from uh, you go from doing basic audio circuit bending to making much more advanced circuit bent art projects and then you moved into textiles as well yeah so in, in between, there's or around the same time, there's a, a glitch era, like where I start thinking about the circuit bending practice as a glitch-oriented practice and start moving away from the big hardware-heavy projects to more software-focused. And that's around that transition is where the textiles come. Basically, I was circuit bending digital cameras, producing visual output, and then I was printing them and not being satisfied with the results. And I was trying to figure out, could I display them on the screen? Screens are expensive and too obvious. Textiles I had done in a previous project with integrating woven or integrating circuits into burlap canvases, circuit paintings. Like that that moment where I was at one point painting in my garage and then circuit bending in my garage and then the painting and circuit bending. Can I like smash this together? Exactly, the mashup. (laughs) (laughs) Probably that was right at the height of the mashup as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes, that was exactly. That was the moment of the mashup. Yeah, and, and so it was a few years after that that I was encountering the work of a few other artists like Melissa Barron, Jeff Donaldson, and we were all working in this area where the computer output needed a material output and they had solved it with textiles and it just continued. It basically um, reconnected to something that I had already experienced before and just seemed like the right path forward. Textiles, like textile production is incredibly important to the history of computing as well. Is that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Jacquard Loom stored patterns and designs in a punch card, and that's basically like the same technology that we use yeah. to program our computers. Absolutely. And that's the crossover. Some people erroneously say that the Jacquard uh, Loom is the first computer, but it doesn't really do com- computation. Um, sure, but it, it does have some of the basic building blocks of computation. 
No, it's got the storage medium. Exactly. That's, that's it. <laughs> we built a computer on top of it. it could, if it could do its own computation, <laughs> it, it's, it'd be a little different. But it's like a player piano. Sure. You sure. know, rather than having the, the sounds woven in, in fluctuations in air pressure, it's threads in a blanket or a piece of material, cloth. So, yeah, you did that. You also have done a lot of 3D animation. Yeah. 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 Did you get into that when you were defining the fabric or how did you end up doing that? That was, I don't even know where, so to, to reach back into something that makes sense, you have, <laughs> I really like claymation. Oh. I have a friend, Nick Perleros, and I, like in, in high school, would watch like Jan Svankmeyer and uh, the Brothers Quay. And also like I helped him out on a couple of his early animated stop motion things. Very silly projects, high school, like I mean, yeah, undergrad amazing. projects. And so I, I have done my own claymation and i think that was where the animation and also stop motion not just stop motion was it like time-lapse photography so i was really into that i had a a digital camera that had a time-lapse feature and i would you don't stop just like investigating disparate things no it's but they're all related right the camera the digital cameras they're all things that you do yeah (laughs) But it's just I have this mat- this material and I have these processes and they don't necessarily they're not like exclusive of one another. So if one thing works over here, I'll try it over here. And sure, these things might have different disciplines associated with their, their histories, but that don't matter. Sure. It's all just it's all just stuff, and stuff will do stuff to stuff if you let it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna print a t-shirt. That's good. <laughs> It's like, hey, <laughs> here's, here's my stuff bio. Stuff if you let it. I make stuff do stuff to stuff. So you taught yourself Blender? Yeah. Um, for a Kimbra video? Kimbra, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing to work with her. I need to catch up and figure out what she's doing. It's been a while. But there was a project where I was trying to hack an installation by Be Real. It was their breathing sphere. Sure. It's all about fi- finding the thing that something wasn't meant to do and then making it do it oh, you're the worst <laughs> yeah i know I you, d- you don't want me like messing around with your project i'll find a way to break should, it like we should just invite you in to be like okay break it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'd love i'd love to be the, like the creative red teamer yeah so That's somebody really was funny because of your talks about uh, computer security is after that too that you're getting into uh, oh right, right right yeah no i'm using that terminology because i've been immersed in that world now for uh last two and a half years i've got some good friends who are on the google team that were that used to be creative red teamers at Google, so we might know some of the same people. Oh, cool! Yeah, we, we, yeah, we should all get together and like, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> share war stories. We, we used to have a thing, in a we dark. Used, beer, we used to have a thing where we played hall. Risk on this just terrible Risk website, and everybody would be playing it remotely. You sign in, you create a user, and hacking it, hacking the website is perfectly acceptable as long as you use a novel hack. My friend figured out that you could uh, actually go onto the website and. Um, you could spoof your armies and as long as you weren't like borrowing an army from another place is if you just sent the armies you had back you could have negative armies in certain areas and get like hundreds of armies in other areas wow it was a really <laughs> fun really fun uh exploit based game of risk yeah that sounds fun anyway Wait, where, 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 where I'm, I'm just digressing <laughs> because i just want to talk to you about this stuff so we were oh, at kimbra the be real project was being presented over at friedman gallery and they had invited a bunch of different artists to do performances with it because it detects your breathing and then changes the um, the color and the intensity of the light. I decided it'd be fun to wire the thing up so that you could listen to it 
because those LEDs, they pulse at a very audible frequency if you have a, a transducer that will convert light fluctuations in we, sound. We had some, we had some, some LEDs for a project that were actually audible. They, you could hear them. Sh- they were just oh, tiny screens and there were millions of them. <laughs> And it was like the worst You're thing. You were torturing no, we had to, we had to, just, we so had to completely not use those. Oh. Um, but we've got them somewhere in a box. If you're interested in screaming LEDs, you might be a person to take them. That's, that's a really good band name, actually, screaming <laughs> LEDs. Just tiny blood-curdling shrieks. This isn't when you're like, like frying an egg and you hear like this, the sizzling sometimes sounds like little screams. Yes, I like that. Yeah, very much. Except for every LED is doing it in an array of several hundred. Yeah, actually, yeah, let's talk about that. (laughs) I've I've wanted to put together an LED array that is meant to decay. Oh. It's just the big monolith that emits light until it doesn't. Very cool. Okay, definitely talking about this afterward. So... (laughs) So you're not breathing. No, not, no, you're you're sending you're wiring up LEDs so you can hear them. So basically I've turned the the installation into an, an instrument and I play the instrument with my body. And it, it's supposed to register when you're breathing. So what happens if you don't breathe? So I I was holding my breath for minutes at a time at getting this thing to behave erratically. Somebody in the audience saw that performance, must have checked out my work, saw that I do video stuff and passed my name along to Kimbra because she had just moved from New Zealand to Brooklyn and was doing residency at Babies All Right, mm-hmm. needed somebody to do visuals. And I was just in the right place at the right time. From that work, there was a request for music video treatments and she really liked the look of a couple of them. And I was looking at a potential budget where I would be able to hire somebody out, but it wasn't going to be there, so I would have to learn how to do the 3D animation myself. And so you just did. So I just that's did. That's you do it. And yeah, I was like, hey, I've always wanted to crack open Blender and, and figure out how it works. So I, I like spent the next, I don't know, it was like an entire year of basically learning Blender and eventually getting work for other artists as well, doing visuals for Kimber's live show or National Sawdust, which went on to producing the Sweet Relief video, and then visuals for Primal Heart Tour. Very and cool. Since then, it's been like, all right, there's not really a demand for this, and also everybody else's skill level has exponentially increased. <laughs> and also, up, I couldn't. Then they leveled up exactly, and, and and a lot of that had to do with GPU availability and and other people's sure. budgets. And like, I didn't, I didn't have the. I know, I know, but it's useful. It's handy. I started using it to to visualize, like basically just mock up everything and simulate stuff. I, I used it to pre-plan my installation for this last show that I did down at Wallplay's On Canal project. Okay. It's called Open Vault. Okay. It's a cybersecurity or cyber insecurity <laughs> specializing in, in <laughs> the sale of of retooled and aftermarket cyber weapons. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so I basically created this fake company that you're like you're like for for forty dollars here's a thumb drive with the Stuxnet binary on it. Although I wasn't actually selling because that's like the really obvious thing. Sure. I I basically wanted to to use it as a way of creating a a visible presence for, for malware that was retro and also invited people in. It used all the vernacular of retail marketing to get folks in the door and exposed to cyber warfare. So I would create these software box designs. And this comes out of a different project that I was working on with Jamie Allen and uh, Maritz Greiner-Petter. But yeah, just to create a shop, 
filled with these software boxes that illustrate pop actual, up. yeah, pop up. <laughs> yeah, totally. That illustrates all of these actual cyber weapons that have been developed either by the CAA, the NSA, Russian threat actors. And I, I didn't really focus on the, the Asian threat actors, but I did get one Iranian threat actor in there. But actual tools, actual malware, the kind of state of the art, here's what's out there. And I did a version of this, the Ethereal Summit, with cryptocurrency miners that were powered by NSA, or it was like the NSA warheads, cyber warheads, tipped with cryptocurrency miners. Okay. Uh, that sounds amazing and hilarious um, at the same time. And so terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> There's three things. Three yeah. things. So you've also visualized malware, and that's available on your site with textiles, right? Yeah. What is that site again? Glitchtextiles.com. Glitchtextiles.com. Yeah. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Awesome. Yeah. I built a tool a while back that I used to take like arbitrary binary files and turn them into to images that could be woven. And this was specifically for a project where after seeing the blank, the first blankets come back from North Carolina, the ones that I sell at glitchtextiles.com, wanted to learn more about how they were made and how to develop the palettes and maybe get some finer quality materials out of it. And when I was down there, I, I had this idea for making some tapestries based on some data that I was essentially thinking about the computer memory, the RAM as a photographic medium. Sure. I do something on the computer, the impression is left behind as zeros and ones on that memory. So it becomes like a film negative. It reminds me, like the look of that reminds me of some of those hard drive data, like oh, sector right, visualizations. Right, right. Yeah, the defragging. Remember Disk Inventory X? Uh, I don't remember that yeah, one. Anyway, it's like a Mac, like where's all your data on your drive? Oh, tool. Yeah. yeah, this is down at like the, the byte or Yeah, you could keep grouping. zooming in and, and get to the sector and then the yeah sector cluster whatever yeah, yeah. all these things yeah so yeah th this tool i just had lying around i i, I approached who was it kirchen 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 I, I only have his last name right now but i basically approached a software engineer to rough out a sketch and then we had the the proof of concept of the tool and i took this to a friend and we he did most of the the coding and i did the tweaking of his code your own i think Dutch. So I think that's how you pronounce his name. We'll go with it. <laughs> and then I retooled that tool from the ground up. And now I have this thing called DataViz that's on my, my GitHub repo. Oh, sweet. And so you can... Is it open source? Yeah. I can do whatever I want with it? Yeah. Processing. Great. Yeah. <laughs> processing. If you want to port it to something else, be my guest. Fork <laughs> it. I don't know. Processing is amazing. Yeah. That tool exists and I've been using it here and there for different projects. And I was... <laughs> a different story. <laughs> I was capturing malware accidentally. <laughs> Like most of us. No, this wasn't This wasn't clicking the wrong link. I was, for a different project, I wanted to sonify, I wanted to make cyber warfare audible mm -hmm. to, to just experience what that would sound like. And in order to do that, I figured, okay, I just open up a computer to the internet and listen to the activity on it, port scans, brute force like, attempts. Like literally put the nick, like... On, on a public IP and just open it wide open. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And But then also to take, to open a, a network socket and take the, the raw packet data and pipe it right to the audio output. You could probably do that with Wireshark or like a mod of Wireshark, right? No, you don't have to, you don't have to get all hacky like that. <laughs> so what I actually did is I wrote a Python script that, that 
open sockets and sure. then there's pi audio and you can drop stuff in the buffer yeah. and so i just have that sounds like it's going to sound pretty noisy yeah and that's available on my github repo too <laughs> so i've been making installations and performances with this tool and in order to drive traffic to my exposed servers i installed honeypots on them and they're interactive to the level that attackers can install malware or not install it but drop malware so I was capturing these binaries. So you got people using some node that you've opened up at this point. I've got 15 of them things. still like actively running. They're not running the honeypots right now, but they're sitting there like <laughs> w waiting to be like fired up for the next installation. Did you know who was doing anything? Were you able to to track any of the actual activity on there? I ain't got time for that. There are a lot of there are a lot of. Um, I, so when I first started doing that, I was looking at the IP ranges and where things were coming from. Some were like the Netherlands, Romania, Russia, of course, China, some hits from North Korea, some from Vietnam. Yeah, so few people are on the internet in North Korea. Yeah. It's who, mostly who, would who would it be? <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty, hello, you're trying to install banking malware or ransomware? Yeah, okay. Thanks, Lazarus Group. I'm not actually uh, an enterprise server, but yeah. I look like one and I play one on the internet. <laughs> I mean, I'll take that as a compliment. I'm just going to push forward a little bit. You also do a lot of work for other artists as a creative technological consultant on their pieces. You were showing us something, Tauba Auerbach uh, piece that you did fairly recently. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, she did a piece that created a, a membrane from bubble soap between two steel cables <laughs> and that were very delicately which, parted. Which, <laughs> amazing, as a glitch artist, I, I love that, that this is the obvious next step for you is to make robot bubbles. Yeah, bubble-blowing bubble robots. Yeah, it was basically an exercise in taking my, my physical computing skills to the next step. Sure. And it, so how does it work? It's got a, a motor. It unwinds several... First, there's okay. a pump at the top. Okay. That was, supposed top. To be, that was supposed to be, like, speed-controlled, whatever, but it turns out we just needed it on full blast. Yeah, you just, <laughs> you, you just got to get the soap on there. Yeah, exactly. You got to get it lubed up. And then the motion control was done by some gearhead motors that had precision rotary um, encoders on them. And I was basically counting all the clicks and figuring out exactly where the thing was and making sure that everything oh, so was synced up. Oh, you put the encoder on the... They can't, thankfully, these motors came with the encoders on them. Oh, interesting. So you can have precision like brush DC motor control with these things. And I find it just... That's wild. Yeah, completely wild and eye-opening. So, you know, the engineer, the engineered in me was sure. really excited about this. But yeah, the code was pretty simple and it was an interesting puzzle to solve. Do I track velocity over time? Do I try to, like, how do I... Because it's partially controlled by centrifugal force, right? This one's a slow enough speed. Works. So it's basically two drums that rotate um, on opposite sides and part this, the, the cable. I don't know. It's like, I, I see. I <laughs> see. Yes, I see what you're saying. Without For some reason, I thought it was actually it. spinning to pull it out. But no, yeah, no, no, no. It's I, was, just, I was misinterpreting even, even the photograph I saw of it. Rotates, pulls the, the two wires apart, and then holds and then reverses direction. Just very simple. And then you can go in there and blow bubbles if you want. Exactly. Blow, blow them clear across the room. <laughs> They're so massive. And how did you get that? How did you get hooked up with Tab Auerbach? Through the Artist Institute, Hunter Colleges. It's this really cool, special place. It has a gallery on the ground floor. I think they also do courses. Maybe 
unrelated. But yeah, I'd done work with them previously on a Madeline Hollander piece, and I'm working with her again on a show that's going to open over at Bordelami at 55 Walker, I think is the, the, the address on January 10th, significantly before this podcast comes out. Okay. Very yeah. Likely. Very likely. <laughs> we'll just cut that. Yeah. No, 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 we might leave it in, but it's fine that you should have gone to that show. And if you didn't, you missed out. Yeah. So yeah, that one, there's going to be a lot of car light assemblies, brake lights, ta- tail lights, and headlights that are synced to the Walker Broadway traffic light. Oh, cool. Ooh, spoiler. I'm not sure if I'm, <laughs> if that's going to be, this is going to come out way <laughs> after the thing. So yeah. No worries. Um, yeah, so it was through working with Madeline at the Artist Institute that they connected me to Talba. And I'd been a fan of her work for a long time. Clearly, there's like aesthetic overlap, but then, yeah, it's just made sense. This has been so interesting. Are there any new th- any things that are on the horizon that you want to talk about or anything you want to plug? I'm going to plug Brahman.ai. Brahman.ai. Okay. <laughs> Let's see if I can do this from memory. The Bombay Radical Artificial humanist media arts nexus Ooh, nice! <laughs> it's like this radical, it's humanist yeah radical humanist Rad- radical artificial humanist oh yeah rough. anything with radical in it it's got to be like an artificial wrong. humanist it's, it's like transhumanism but it's not it's artificial humanism right no we're advocating for the humanity of artificial intelligence i think this is the brainchild of Gene Kogan, the uh, architect behind ML4A, Machine Learning for Artists. And he's basically bringing together a bunch of art tech luminaries, weirdos, <laughs> curiosity seekers in the desert at Bombay Beach uh, on the Salton Sea in California, just south of Joshua. And I'm going to be doing network stuff out there. Sounds really AI exciting. AI stuff, skill sharing, yoga unicycle stuff Fine. yeah and, <laughs> Electric I don't, unicycles, and anybody I who knows me the, the animation yeah yeah that'll be fun and anybody who knows me knows that i don't do yoga so that's <laughs> like an inside joke there nice very good so you're gonna teach all the yoga classes oh hell yeah oh yeah oh man <laughs> philip it is so awesome to have this interview with you thank you so much for coming to hush yeah it's been great to be here and thanks for having me good luck Thanks. Bye. <laughs> I'm going to need it. <laughs> <laughs>